Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke. We'll look at a few verses, 36 to 43. Luke 24, 36 to 43. Some time ago, someone asked me, isn't Jesus rising from the dead really the same as his ascending to the Father? I had never really thought about that question, but in other words, this person thought that Jesus coming alive again after his death was the same thing as him going to heaven, alive with the Father. And and I guess that's how we might think of our own experience. We die, but it's not the end. We go to be with the Lord, and we live forever. But Jesus' experience was completely different than that. He rose from the dead and then moved about alive in this world for about six weeks, 40 days, actually, before ascending into heaven. And in the Bible, we have some record of what happened during those 40 days, the time between Jesus rising from the dead and his ascending into heaven. And our text this morning is part of that record of what happened during that period from Easter morning till Ascension Day. Let me read it, verses 36 to 43. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And we'll stop there. I'd like to set before you two um, simple but profound, I think, truths that um, we get in this little section. The first is this. Jesus' resurrection is not... A myth. Jesus' resurrection is not a myth. Throughout history, we humans have always known myths. We may call them folk tales or legends or fairy tales. There are many of them and there are many different kinds, but they are always with us. Some are ancient tales involving mythological creatures, which nobody really ever takes seriously anymore. Some of them are tales created for children, Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Others are tales presented as true, though never with any verifiable evidence to speak of. Urban legends which circulate for years and are believed by many. Sightings of Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster. Tales of UFOs and close encountered with alien creatures. Folk tales, myths, legends. But folks, Jesus' resurrection is not part of that folklore. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not an ancient legend. The difference exists in the matter of evidence. Myths and folktales get passed down from generation to generation, 
But there is not ever even an attempt to prove that those ancient stories are actually true. They're simply part of the folklore of cultures, quite apart from discussions of evidence. But the resurrection of Jesus is something quite different. In Acts 1, that's Luke's second volume of history, in Acts 1, the historian Luke tells us that one of the purposes of Jesus being in the world for those 40 days before he ascended into heaven was to provide evidence that his resurrection was a historical fact, not folklore. Listen to what he writes in Acts 1. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles he had chosen and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now that's more like the world we live in, a world of verifiable evidence. And because we live in that kind of world, we're not so easily caught up in myths and legends as as people before us have been. We want proof. We want testimony. We want collaboration of the things we hear. It's true in our our families. If your three-year-old tells you something, eh, you want to hear it from your 12-year-old before you're so quick to believe that. It's true in, in, in news agencies. Responsible journalists do not publish stories until they have at least another reliable source. It's true in the justice system. He said, she said cases are notoriously weak. Courts are looking for hard evidence. Multiple, credible witnesses. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus really rose from the dead, there ought to be multiple confirming accounts. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what we have. There the Apostle Paul gives us a list of some of the appearances of Jesus and the names of some of the people who saw him alive after his resurrection. Let me read a little bit. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living when Paul writes this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last, he also appeared to me. Paul was presenting evidence to help us to understand and believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. It's not folklore. It's not a myth. And as we said this morning, this text is one piece of that evidence. There have already been many appearances of Jesus to different people on this resurrection day. That's when this takes place. This is the evening of resurrection day. Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. He had appeared to Simon Peter. We're not told when, but we're told twice that that happened. He had appeared to Cleopas and his friend who were going back home to Emmaus, and he talked with them and eaten with them. And now in our text, Jesus appears to the 12 disciples back in the upper room where, frankly, they were hiding out. They were frightened. They were startled. They didn't know if they were coming for them next. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and spoke peace to them, and then began to confirm in practical ways that he really had risen from the dead. It was not just some urban legend. Now, before we get into the details of what happened in the upper room, think how important it is that Jesus really rose from the dead. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not, the Bible's not true. 
Jesus clearly says that he was going to rise from the dead. If he did not, he lied to us. You see, this is not a matter of of inconsequence, inconsequential implications. Apostle Paul puts it this way. If Jesus has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Jesus from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ Jesus uh, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Jesus, we are to be pitied more than all people. Oh, it matters. But Jesus really did rise from the dead. God confirmed it to us the same way we confirm things with multiple eyewitness accounts. He did not just give us two or three witnesses as the Old Testament law required. He gave us dozens, hundreds of eyewitnesses that we might know for sure. But in this particular account, the Holy Spirit has another very specific concern, which then is our second point. Jesus, the risen Jesus, is not a ghost. The risen Jesus is not a ghost. Do you believe in ghosts? Many people do. Many people believe that the dead can return in certain places, certain situations, influence people's lives. Actually, that's not so surprising. For today, as in ancient Greek culture, the people that Luke was writing to, today we still tend to believe in the immortality of the soul. When the body dies, the soul goes on living. So while an encounter with someone from the realm of the dead may be an unsettling prospect for you, The ancient Greeks and many people today believe that's quite possible. But the risen Jesus is not a ghost. That was the whole point of Jesus' encounter with his disciples, his resurrection evening, to demonstrate to them that he was not a ghost. Fred Craddock points out that though there are many similarities between this incident and and his his, uh, dealings with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, here the point is very different. Here the point is the corporeality, the bodily being of the risen Christ. The disciples were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost, and Jesus was there to show them otherwise. Now he offers two proofs. First, he offers his body for their examination. He shows them his hands and his feet. He invites them to touch him. According to John's gospel, a week later, uh, he invited Thomas, who was doubting all this, to put your fingers in 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 the nail prints. Put your hand in my side. Jesus was making a point that ghosts do not have flesh and blood. If you hug a ghost, you got nothing. There's nothing there. But the risen Jesus is not a ghost. He had a body. They touched it. They saw it. 
heard him speak. Secondly, Jesus asked his disciples for something to eat. They gave him a piece of fish and he ate it in their presence. But folks, ghosts don't eat food. Which again makes the point. Jesus is not a ghost. What we need to understand here is that the Bible does not teach this common idea of the immortality of the soul. That's the view that the body and things physical are evil, but the spirit and things spiritual are good. The spirit has always lived. In the Greek thought, there was kind of a pool of souls, when the body came into existence, some soul was taken and given to that body, and when the body died, went and rotted, that soul was set free from the body to go and roam about the earth, because the soul was immortal. It had always been, it always will be. The body was just a prison for a little while. That's a pagan Greek idea. What the Bible teaches is the resurrection of the body. And Jesus' resurrection was the first such event, as we talked about last week. He was not the first person brought back from the dead. The Bible has several examples of people being resuscitated long after CPR would have helped. But Jesus was the first to be resurrected with a transformed, immortal body. In other words, when the disciples encountered Jesus, they were not encountering encountering someone from the shadowy realm of the dead, from Sheol. They were encountering, encountering Jesus alive in a risen, glorious, new, immortal body. Now let's be honest, that raises really difficult questions for us. N.T. Wright describes the problem well when he writes, what sort of body did Jesus have? How could it, at the same time, be solid and real with flesh and bones, able to eat baked fish and and to demonstrate that it was not a ghost, and also to appear and disappear, apparently at will, and at the end be carried into heaven? Just what sort of body are we talking about? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses that dilemma in 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes the point that the resurrection body is the same body that died, but at the same time, it is a new kind of body that is raised. He contrasts the natural body with the resurrection body with a whole series of contrasts. The old one is earthly, the resurrected one is heavenly. The old one is perishable, the resurrected one is imperishable. The old one is weak, the resurrected one is powerful. The old one is natural, the resurrected one is spiritual. The old one is mortal, the resurrected one is immortal. That's helpful. But even that contrast presents us a problem. For when we read in 1 Corinthians that the resurrected body is spiritual... We assume, oh, that means the resurrected body is a disembodied spirit, a ghost, (laughs) not human flesh. But the risen Jesus appeared 
and showed himself and allowed himself to be touched and ate food with his disciples just to prove he was not a disembodied spirit, a ghost. So stick with me a minute because it's going to get a little technical here, but I want to try to explain as best as I've been able to learn. This word spiritual. There's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. The Greek word used is not the common noun, pneuma, which means spirit, or wind, or, or breath. That's the word translated ghost in verse 37, 39. It's not a ghost, not a pneuma. Instead, the word spiritual used here is an adjective, pneumatikos, it doesn't matter what it is, but it's an adjective that's related to the word pneuma. Here's how Tom Wright explains the difference. The Greek adjectives that end in kos, kos, do not describe the substance out of which something is made. They describe the force that is animating the thing that is made. So if someone asks, is this a wooden ship or a steel ship? They're asking about the substance of, the, of which the ship is made. But if someone asks, is this a nuclear-powered ship or is this a steam-powered ship? They're not asking what it's made of. They're asking how it's powered, how it's energized, how it functions. So Christ's resurrection body was not of the substance of a ghost or spirit. It was not spiritual in that sense. His body, though, though it was a material body, is a spirit-powered, spirit-enabled body. Let me give you another example of that kind of language from the Bible. It seems, seems quite different, but it's actually related. 1 Corinthians 10. We read about the children of Israel in the wilderness, and we find the same word spiritual, pneumatikos. It says they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink when they ate the manna, and drank the water from the rock. So I ask you, was the man a real food? Was the water real water? Or was it ghostly food? It had no substance to it. It kind of looked like it was there, but it wasn't there. Well, no, it was real food. It sustained them for 40 years. But it was food provided not by their natural efforts at making bread, And digging wells, it was food provided by the supernatural power of God's Spirit. Real food, but not food that was made by their efforts, food made by the Spirit's power. So what exactly then is that contrast between the natural body and the spiritual or resurrected body? The present natural body is a body animated by our ordinary human soul. But the future resurrected body will be a body animated by God's spirit and hence incorruptible, immortal, won't die. 
Nevertheless, the resurrected body will be a material body, flesh and bones. Just like man, it was real food. You could eat it and taste it. In the resurrection, God takes the stuff of the earthly, mortal, corruptible bodies and makes out of that a new kind of body fit for heaven. Immortal. Incorruptible. Now this probably sounds strange to our ears for we're accustomed to hearing people talk about dying as if one dies only to become part of the great spirit of life in the world. The breeze in your hair, the butterfly in your cheek. That sounds so sweet. It's New Age thinking. It's pagan Greek thinking. In contrast, throughout his whole history, the Christian church and all her creeds has confessed Jesus rose from the dead in the same, the same, albeit changed, body that was buried. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So before we close, what difference does it make? Well, let me give you two quick answers. It's important to affirm that the Jesus we now know is the same Jesus who lived in a body and died on the cross. Fred Craddock makes this wonderful observation. He says, if the Jesus who died belongs to the historical past, but the one that we now follow is the eternal Christ, then the Christian life can take on forms of spirituality without suffering, that are without suffering for others, without a cross, without any engagement in the issues of life in this world, all the while expressing devotion to a living spiritual Christ. But the gospel has no such definition of discipleship. And sure enough, can we not observe that as belief in the resurrection of the body has disintegrated into a belief in the immortality of the soul, Christian spirituality is also disintegrated into some otherworldly, intangible thing which Jesus would not even recognize. Just what much of Christianity is now. One more reason why this matters. Our understanding of the resurrection of Jesus forms our understanding of our own resurrection our hope and our hope for the creation. The idea that we will become spirits or spirit beings floating in the clouds somewhere distorts the hope which God holds before us in his word. He speaks of a renewed creation, a new heaven, a new earth. It sounds like the Garden of Eden with the curse removed. In fact, if you look in the Bible, there's an interesting thing to note. We have about two chapters at the beginning of Genesis before sin enters the picture. There you have the creation, Adam and Eve in the garden, tending the garden, fellowship with God. Sin enters the picture, 
And then the rest of the Bible is God's whole plan to deal with the sin problem, the links to which he would go even becoming man and dying to pay for this sin in order to redeem his creation. That's the whole story until you get to the last two chapters of Revelation. When the curse is removed. And there you have a picture of the future reality. If you go and read Genesis 1 and 2 and read Revelation 21 and 22, you'll say, wow, a lot of similarity. Here's the tree of life. Here's the river flowing from the middle of the garden. Here's the fruit, 12 months a year, all these things. God made us human beings, body and soul. And he put us in a beautiful physical garden, which he had made. And that is what we can expect for the future that we will be physical human beings. Renewed, no curse, not dying, not corruptible, and we will be living in a renewed creation, a new heaven, a new earth. Not some other kind of absurd being in some other kind of existence. How do we know that? Because there isn't Jesus was not a ghost. And neither will we be. Back in 2011, the great physicist Stephen Hawking declared that there is no afterlife. Here's what he said. The brain is a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hawking is a brilliant scientist. He's probably one of the smartest men alive today. So should we believe him? I would be inclined to. He's a lot smarter than me. There's just one problem. Jesus said otherwise. Jesus said of his own body, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And and Jesus said of those who believe in him, anyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Unlike Hawking who doesn't believe such things could ever happen, Jesus not only promises it in advance, He rose from the dead himself already, like he said. So who are you going to believe? I don't know about you. My hope is in Jesus because the hard evidence is on his side. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so much we don't understand about resurrection, about the future, about what a resurrection body could be, what a what body would look like that wasn't dying, what a world would look like where there was no sin. We can't comprehend it. And yet, Lord, we see that that's exactly what you tell us. And you prove that you know what you're talking about by raising Jesus from the dead the third day, just like you said. So give us a heart to believe. 
to keep struggling to understand. To not just throw up our hands and accept the unbelief or the, or the push all of these things into some uh, otherworldly kind of uh, fairy tale. Help us, Father, to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.